from AATH, the Association for Applied and Therapeutic Humor. This is LaughBox, the podcast for laughter and humor professionals. Here's your host, Chip Lutz. Well, hello, friends, and welcome to LaughBox, the official podcast for the Association for Applied and Therapeutic Humor. Uh, this week, I get to talk to Patty Wooten. Patty Wooten, I kind of look at her as kind of like the godma- godmother of uh, AATH. She's been around since the beginning, before a- even AATH was around, and it was, I think, uh, a different organization, I think, of uh, nursing jocularity. Um, maybe I'm right on that. I don't know exactly, but I know that she, you know, used to plan all the conferences, was president, is a Lifetime Achievement Award winner. She's a nurse. She's a humorist. She's a speaker. She's a hospital clown. She just does it all. I mean, she spreads joy wherever she goes. Just a fantastic person. I'm so excited that I get to talk to her today. So welcome, Patty, to LaughBox. Thank you, Chip. It's good to be here. Well, the pleasure is absolutely mine. I mean, I tell you, like, I remember the first conference I went to and I saw you at the airport and I was like, hey, that's Patty Wood. And I was all excited. So, <laughs> <laughs> so now all my dreams could have come true and I get to, you know, spend a little more intimate time with you talking about things. It's, you know, I know we're going to talk about, you know, looking at uh, humor and dealing with different disasters. Um, but, you know, for those of us, uh, those are the listeners that don't know you all that well. If you could kind of give them just the, the the brief background on Patty Wooten, nurse extraordinaire. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, a legend in my own mind, perhaps. Um, <laughs> let's see. Uh, my, my, um, my professional career has been nursing for about 44 years. And after I was a nurse for about five years, I went through a bunch of personal tragedies and challenges and was really quite depressed and couldn't seem to get out of it. Um, So I went to clown school, uh, which is not a person's first choice, but I lived in California and so we had a lot of uh, choices at the time. Hmm. So I traveled off to clown school thinking maybe this will help me get out of the depression. And what I found was that by hiding behind the clown mask and acting as if life was fun and funny, my internal uh, experience of the world began to shift. My belief in myself and potential began to shift. And I gradually came out of the, um, out of the uh, depression and uh, incredibly grateful for that opportunity. And so I then began wanting to help others understand how important humor and laughter and play could be for, you know, emotional challenges or just life quality. Um, So I began to teach nurses about how they could use humor to uh, cope with the stress in the job Mm -hmm. and perhaps even use humor at the bedside to um, help people experience their recovery a little more easily. Mm Mm-hmm. And then along the way, I started giving speeches and wrote some books and taught clown classes. And, um, and then we came upon AATH, which began actually out of that small nurses group. There was about 13 nurses after a laughter and play conference. 13 nurses got together. And uh, Allison Crane actually put a little notice up on a bulletin board and says, nurses interested in laughter meet here at lunch. And there were 13 of us, and we started Nurses for Laughter and a little newsletter, and we began sharing our thoughts and ideas. Uh And then then, um, about a year after that, somebody said, well, look, you know, 
we should expand this to include more than just nurses. What about social workers? What about physicians? What about teachers? And so that's when we decided to expand the scope and called it therapeutic humor. Uh, yeah, so that's kind of how that evolved. How cool is that? That uh, <laughs> just a notice on a bulletin board. It's like, hey, anybody interested in laughter? Let's meet here. And uh, <laughs> just is amazing that you know we've the organization has been around thirty plus years, and it all started with you know a note on a bulletin board. Exactly. That is pretty also, neat. The environment was was ripe. I mean, Norman Cousins' book had come out just a few years before. Uh, Bill Fry was starting to from Stanford, physician professor at Stanford, was starting to write about psychological benefits of humor and mm -hmm. the humor movement was just beginning uh, back then. Uh, so we were just one more piece to the uh, piece to the puzzle. That's pretty neat. Pretty cool stuff. Now I know that today we're looking at looking at humor and disaster and we certainly have had a lot of stuff going on recently. Hurricanes, uh, just you know some earthquakes down in Mexico, just a, a lot of crazy natural disasters going on there. And you know, for me thinking about you know disasters, I haven't had to undergo anything like that, but I've had disasters in my own life. But, you know, thinking about laughing during the middle of a disaster, I mean, you know, is that something that's really possible for people? It is possible, and we know that it happens actually quite frequently. Um, there's writings um, from the times of the Holocaust uh, in concentration camps where laughter was used to cope. Uh, from the Vietnam War, POWs that used laughter over many, many years while they were imprisoned uh, to help them cope and keep their um, psychological um, stability, uh, and a variety of disasters, whether, you know, like the earthquake in San Francisco or the flooding in the Midwest or uh, hurricanes and tornadoes down in, in Texas. Yeah, there's a lot of history of humor and laughter being used uh, to cope with the uh, shock. Well, how, why does it help us cope? Well, I think one of the first things it does is it gives us a relief for the tension. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you can laugh or you can cry. Um, and then Victor Borga says, I prefer laughing. There's less mopping up to do afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> True statements, true statements. And I assume that there's, I mean, it's like, it got to be like an element of control in there as well is that, you know, you can't control that situation. You can't control what's happened, but you can't control how you are reacting to the situation. Certainly, you know, crying about it or laughing about it, you know, laughter gives you a little bit more, I don't know, more of a power stance than crying. Crying to me, you know, what you feel is what you feel. However, um, for me, laughing at a situation puts me a little bit more in a power position. It does. It does. It gives you perceptual control. It gives you an attitudinal control uh, and it influences others around you. I mean, I love that, that quote from Shakespeare. I think it was Hamlet. And he says, nothing is either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. <laughs> thinking. Yeah. When we sit around and ruminate about things, <laughs> thinking make, sometimes I can be my own worst enemy on, you know, making it through something. <laughs> If I sit back and I think about it wrong. Yeah, or get into the pity pot of, oh, poor me. Yeah, exactly. So I think we kind of hit on the why, you know, why else do people laugh during, you know, situations like, you know, you know, natural disasters or even man-made disasters? Well, it gives us some control, like we were talking, the perceptual control. 
I can look at it this way and that feels better. Mm -hmm. uh, and it gives us some emotional distancing uh, from the crisis. Um, and a, and a, like I said, a feeling of control. Um, and it helps us connect with others to feel like we're not the only ones in this. You know, we, we, sh we are a community that shares in this experience. Interesting. It reminds me of I had the opportunity to uh, interview um, Father John Noss. He was a, a priest up at uh, Marquette University. And when we were talking, he, he equated humor and laughter to being like a helicopter that can lift, up, lift, up, lift us up over our issues so we can get a perspective. So when you said that it can distance us a little bit, that's what came to mind for me as far as thinking about, you know, having that perspective, that emotional distance. Yeah, to rise above. Yeah, what is it that, uh, I forget who said it, some, we use our levity to rise above the gravity or gravity of the situation. So <laughs> you worked hard to make those rhyme. That was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. Levity and gravity, yes, or lavity and gravity. Um, make them rhyme. Things always work better when they rhyme. I. That's just me. Um, now, historically, you know, how, um, how do people, how have they used humor, you know, historically to handle difficult situations? Um, well, like I said, we, um, <clears throat> we, we see it in many, many different situations, uh, probably historically back to the beginning of time. Um, but it provides us some distancing uh, mm -hmm. from the crisis. When you're in the middle of the crisis, you feel like you are um, damaged and you are <clears throat> um, struggling. And so when we laugh at it, we, we again detach and we sort of master our anxiety. There's a little game we play, I think, in our heads, say, it's not bothering me, look, I'm laughing about it. Mm -hmm. um, I remember when um, Ed Dunkelblau, also a AATH member, past president and a, and a Lifetime Achievement Award winner, uh, he and I went down to, uh, Saint, uh, to New Orleans uh, about six months after Katrina. Mm -hmm. We were asked to come down there to speak to not only the community, but also to the hospital staff to help them try to get through and understand uh, their reactions to the, um, to the experience. And there was one point I think Ed said, is there anybody out here who can tell us about something funny that happened, but you didn't know it was funny until afterwards? Mm -hmm. And there was this little lady raised her hand and she says, well, I remember when they came to rescue me in the boat and they carried me out to the boat. And I said to the man, please go get my little dog. My little dog is in there. He's going to die. So the man went back into the flooded house and found the little dog and came back out and said to the lady, you know, uh, your, your dog nearly died. When I went in there, he was swimming and swimming and swimming. And, you know, he was so exhausted, he could have just climbed up and gotten on the couch, which was above the water. And she says, I, took, I looked at that man and I said, I have told my dog a thousand times not to get up on the couch. <laughs> That's funny. But it became funny afterwards, but at the time she didn't realize, you know. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, they say that uh, 
tragedy plus time equals comedy. So it's uh, sometimes we don't know till afterwards. I know that after 9-11, I was serving, well, during, before and during and after uh, 9-11, 2001, I mean, I was serving in, in D.C. and I was in charge of a security organization. And so it was really, really busy. But, you know, afterwards, I mean, that was obviously a, a man-induced disaster. And we were only, you know, four miles away from the Pentagon. Mm. And it was really, really stressful. But we had, a, we coped a lot that you know that week and afterwards with just simple things and some of it was kind of dark but that was the thing that kind of helped us you know through the through through the process of you know getting through things exactly yeah exactly. And, and, all right very very interesting i love that story and i love the fact that you did a voice for it too because as soon as you started the voice i started laughing i would just <laughs> it was the voice was just funny to me the story was great but the voice was awesome as well <laughs> you know, now thinking about that, you know, that sometimes we don't know until later. I mean, how soon can that, that, that perspective shift for us or how soon can the laughter occur or how can people speed it up for themselves? Uh, <clears throat> well, it depends on how involved you are in, in or how close you are to the actual disaster crisis. Um, because at the very beginning, if you're at ground zero, so to speak, no matter what the disaster is, you feel um, very involved. You feel physically threatened, certainly emotionally threatened, and it's almost impossible to laugh at that time because mm -hmm. you don't feel safe. Um, and so it, 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 it takes a little time until you feel like, you know, you're down off of that roof or you're, the water has stopped coming at you or... Um, there's a sense of stability, and then you're able to perhaps, again, uh, laugh. And what we know is the more that you're affected by the disaster, the harder it is to laugh. So let's say in the flood, the person that believes or sees that they've lost everything in their house and, and um, the potential for the future, um, and there's no hope for recovery, that person will have a harder time or a more delayed sense of being able to laugh than the person who loses the same amount but has a sense of hope that, okay, I have some financial resources, I have some insurance, I have some um, possibility of getting back to where I was. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's about the amount of the impact. Um, so do you think that, I mean, because you mentioned prior that uh, historically, I mean, even in the POW uh, camps in the Hanoi Hilton and stuff that, you know, people have used humor and laughter to kind of cope with things is, do you think it's just inherent to our human nature that, you know, it, laughter always finds a way that it always finds a way to rear its ugly head, even because, I mean, like you just said, there are some things that just plain aren't funny. They just aren't, they, they are not funny at the time, whether it's, um, you think about, um, I was in the hospital earlier this year and I had a perforated bowel and the pain was excruciating mm -hmm. and there wasn't much funny during all that. Now, evidently I'm super hilarious when I come out of anesthesia, so, <laughs> <laughs> but I wasn't any, I wasn't any pain at that time, but it, that, do you think that it always just you know, eventually finds a way for us? It just, sometimes we have to wait it out. I think time is, is a factor. I think culture plays um, a, another huge influence um, in terms of whether you're 
culture that you've lived and grown up with is if it's natural to that culture and it's allowed and expected, etc. If you think of the Jewish culture um, and, and um, history, they've always created humor um, in different situations. And mm-hmm. Dr. Frankel writes about it in the Holocaust. Um, Steve Lipman wrote a book uh, called Laughter in Hell. And uh, he's a psychologist that looked at how much humor and laughter was used um, during the uh, World War II and, again, in the concentration camps. So I think culture plays a difference with it. Uh, We know that the more physical distance you have from the disaster, the quicker your laughter comes back. Uh For example, think of 9-11 those in the New York or Washington areas that were physically experiencing the horror um, and and the fallout from that immediate horror, it was harder for them to laugh than, say, in California. Um, I mean, none of us laughed for a while, but but we we weren't as impacted because we didn't have the visceral experience of the sights and smells and, and perhaps friends that were were lost in that experience. That's an interesting distinction that, you know, even with the hurricanes that went through that there were things that were popping up on my social media feed that um, were hurricane related, you know, humor hurricane related, but they weren't always posted by people that were in that area. So, you know, obviously you had that, you know, those people had that physical distance. And I started thinking that "Hmm, if I was in that, if I was in that vicinity and I knew that danger was imminent and things were going on. Would I think this is as funny as I do because I live in Wisconsin and we don't have hurricanes up here? <laughs> yeah, it's precisely, precisely. Well, you know, another, yeah, another member of AATH, Sandy Ritz, um, a woman who got a doctorate degree in um, public health, a nurse also. Um, she wrote her doctoral thesis on the recovery uh, that Hawaii experienced after Hurricane Aniki in, I think, 1992 or somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. Um, and she described um, a series of disaster recovery phases and matched them up with the, how humor changed during those different recovery phases. Um, you know, like the first stage of any disaster recovery is the heroic phase. And, you know, we certainly saw that in Houston with the Cajun Navy that came in and the multi-ethnic people that were re- were rescuing people of other colors and races. And mm-hmm. it was a real uh, unifying, actually right after Charlottesville experience. Um, so during that heroic phase, uh, you know, people really come together and the laughter is really shared. Um, but then as the, as the situation evolves, then there's a distinction between those who come in to help who haven't experienced the loss as much and those who are still in the middle of the loss. And then that's when the humor begins to shift and isn't shared quite as much. So I, are you saying that there's a difference in the humor that's used by survivors versus like the rescue workers? Yes. Yes, absolutely. There's a, at first there's a laughing with where um, they're laughing together about equally struggling through whatever the challenge is. And then as the, uh, and she actually defined it as called the, the honeymoon phase 
which happens about a week to a few months after the disaster, um, that there's still some optimism about, oh, you know, I have insurance or FEMA's going to help or whatever, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then as it gets further and the recovery is not as successful as they hoped, then there's go, they go into this, what's called the disillusionment phase where, um, <clears throat> well, my insurance isn't going to pay anything and, and we're not going to get our electricity back. And so there's a real time um, recovery thing. And of course the disaster workers um, go back home at some point. Right. Uh, and so, you know, they're, they have again that physical distance from that uh, experience. Interesting. So it's almost kind of like the different stages of grief. There's different stages of um, humor as, you know, we're going through a, going through uh, a disastrous thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she calls it the honeymoon, the heroic phase, the honeymoon phase, the disillusionment phase, and then finally the reconstruction phase, which can happen a year, six months to a year afterwards where the rebuilding is actually occurring and, and it shifts. How interesting is that? That I, I'd never really, I mean, I'd never really thought about a cycle like that. And so in my mind, it's just, I'm just like kind of blown away that, you know, wow, that, that does make, you know, quite a bit of sense in, you know, looking at a disaster like that. So, um, very interesting that she have it like drawn out. Was it like a cool model like that? Cause I, that's what I would have done. <laughs> that's what I would have yeah. done. Oh. Yeah, she has this grid kind of a thing and, and talks about the different phases and how the how the humor shifts between survivors and uh, disaster workers. Oh, so is, you said that she had a book? Or is uh, that it's just... a doctoral thesis, so I'm sure it's published somewhere, but yeah. Oh, I'm going to have to look that up. And what was the other book that you said? Was it Humor in Hell or Laughter in Hell? Because I want to make sure. Hell by Steve Lipman. Yeah, I want to make sure I get that one too, because I'd never heard of that. I mean, obviously, I you know I've read you know Victor Frankel's Man's Search for Meaning, and he talks about how humor you know helps people cope a little bit. Um, but I'd never heard of that book, so that's something I'm going to put on my list to get. I'm always looking for other things to feed my brain a little bit, expand my ex- expand my brain. Because I'm not near as smart as as you, so I've to, I have to work at it a little bit harder. Um, <laughs> Actually, you remember. Um, the first AATH conference after 9-11, it was only like two months after 9-11 we had, or three months after 9-11, we had our AATH conference in Baltimore. Uh-huh. No, that, and, was bef- that was before me. I don't remember that one. Oh, oh okay. Um, well, so Ed and I had been putting on conferences, and, you know, here's the three-day humor and laughter conference and all this. And it's all about, you know, uh, finding your laughing place and releasing and laughing, you know, fun. But yet here we were two to three months uh, just outside of 9-11. Mm-hmm. But we can't just start a conference without mentioning 9-11, without integrating how humor can be a tool to, for recovery, how humor was used and um, and uh, what reminded me of this was Steve Lipman, the man who wrote Laughter in Hell. We invited him to come as a speaker. Oh, wow. As one of the experts on how do you laugh in the face of, of horrible situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, but we had the chance to then 
take a look at some of the humor that was used immediately after 9-11. Like I said, there, for a few weeks, there wasn't any right. uh, at all. And all eyes were on New York City. It was like, we can't laugh until we know they're okay with laughter. Mm-hmm. And even some of the, you know, the late night comedy shows and Saturday Night Live all had a kind of somber um, presence on stage. Um, and then you be- began to see a little bit of humor here and there, the Saturday Night Live um, uh, with uh, Giuliani on stage and, uh, you know, Jay Leno and David Letterman and all of them saying, you know, I know that uh, spring is coming to New York because um, I was walking through Central Park and I saw all the squirrels uh, collecting their Cipro or stockpiling their Cipro. Mm-hmm. The anthrax thing, and you know, some of the lines the comedians use when they stepped on stage saying, Well, I guess this takes the heat off the sharks, what they were laughing about before 9 11. Um, yeah, yeah. So, I think the closer we are to the disaster and the time, and the closer the time is to the disaster, the harder it is. Um, and we all, not wanting to offend, take our cues from those closest to the disaster. Right. Well, I mean, and that kind of brings me to like the, what I want to kind of hit on, you know, we looked at some of the things there, but as far as like practical application, if, you know, I've just gone through something like that, what are some things that I can do to try to, you know, help me rebound, you know, humor or laughter wise, what are some things, some practical applications well, what we see we see humor and laughter coming back usually in an intimate setting. So it's usually with trusted fan, friends and family. Mm-hmm. Um, that's often where the humor will begin to start. Um, and so I think that we need to look at what what made us laugh before. Okay. Who were the comedians that made us laugh? Who were the cartoonists? What were the TV shows that made us laugh? And see and reconnect with that. Um, because historically we should be able to find that again. Um, laughing about the disaster may be more difficult than laughing at something completely apart uh, from the disaster. Okay. Um, yeah, and there's a website that I like uh, for you know, all kinds of current events. It's called kegel.com, C-A-G-L-E. Okay. Uh, and he has, you know, all of the collected from around the world current event humor. So it can be political. It can be, you know, located on uh, some things that are happening on the other side of the world, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And I would, I, and I would make sure everybody knows how to spell that right. So you want to make sure that you're, you look up kegel.com and not kegel.com. Because I think you're going to get a much different result. <laughs> <laughs> I'll to check out that website too. So, you know, being around people, you know, and I think that's a, a great uh, piece of advice on, you know, not isolating, isolating yourself. Cause sometimes when we go through something, we do tend to isolate ourselves, but being around and, you know, starting in that intimate setting and then, you know, moving on and maybe you can't laugh at that disaster, but think about some of those things historically that made you laugh and reaching out and trying to like, just like fill yourself with some of those other things that might not be disaster specific. Those are great pieces of advice to you know, help, help you move through the, the, the stages. What are some other things that have worked that you've seen? Um, well, before I forget, I want to tell you about one cartoon I saw on the Kegel site earlier. And that was um, 
there was sort of this city skyline and it was halfway filled up with water and it said, Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> Which, you know, <laughs> was yeah. a bit of an understatement. Uh, but it helped it, you know, give it a little bit of a, of a shift uh, mm -hmm. back to that um, Apollo flight in the movie and all of that. Um, so, so laughter among intimate friends, people that you've laughed with, trusted friends and family, that's one thing. Going back to what made us, makes us laugh before. Um, other things, and again, you have to over, you have to somehow get around the technical logistical thing. You're not going to be reading newspapers. You're going online until you have electricity and some kind mm -hmm. of ability. So some of those are, are limited. Um, but just sharing stories with families about what used to be funny and what the fun things we used to share. Um, puppies and and uh kittens you know those silly little things that they do you see them on facebook all the time right uh, you know it's innocent it's it's almost childlike and just playful and it kind of renews your sense that life can be innocent yeah i don't know why cats are so funny i mean i really think that most cats you know they are they don't care about humans they are the they own the house but they are just the things that people put up with cats on the internet are hilarious i don't know what makes them so funny but maybe it is that 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 childlike thing that it, and the absurdity of thinking of a cat doing certain things actually i saw a, a meme where it gave the different categories of uh hurricanes but it had cats in it so it was like a cat one and it showed a cat just kind of sitting there all the way up to a cat five, uh, cat five where cats were flying all over the place and it was <laughs> It was hilarious, but then again, I live in Wisconsin, so I was one of those things where you know I don't really have to deal <laughs> deal with the actual Category Five hurricane, but yes. it was yeah. uh, it was with cats, so it made me laugh. And even funnier for a cat person, I tend to be more of a dog person, so you know I appreciate the dog sort of situations and uh, humor. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, great advice. I mean, great practical applications and thinking about things historically on how humor and laughter have been used throughout the ages. Like you said, since the beginning of time for helping people get through things. I've had the opportunity to talk to a few people that, well, you know, talk to a person that was a POW in the Hanoi Hilton. And, you know, he did say that it was, you know, humor that, um, that even reared its head there, that it was one of those things that after a while it just, they had their own sense of humor of things that were funny and gave them kind of a power position over, you know, the, the, the overall situation. It was interesting yeah. to hear about the, 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 the cycle as well, that I'd never thought about it in that. And I'm going to have to make sure that I look that up so I can get that visual on uh, how things you know, work when you're going through them and realizing that there is hope at the ends and humor can help us get there. Exactly. And, and there's kind of two, um, I guess, the categories or genres. There's a person who can create the humor and stimulate the laughter, which is really um, a powerful skill to have. Mm -hmm. uh, on the other side of the people that allow themselves to appreciate the laughter. Um, and I remember reading uh, in Gerald Coffey's book uh, when he was a POW about how the soldiers that created the humor were recovered better, had much more stability uh, after uh, the POW experience. And that one story he told about some soldier 
scribbled on the wall or etched in the wall of the shower uh, a little phrase and he was taking a shower one day and he looked over and this little scratched message said smile you're on candid camera right and how just the Viet Cong never knew anything about that but how it just lifted everybody's spirits and allowed them to laugh a little that's pretty funny yeah I, um, I read that in his book as well and I thought that was hilarious um, that you know humor always finds a way sometimes it takes a little bit of time but it, it finds a way now, after today, if people want to find you, you know, where do, where do they go, Patty? Well, I have a website, which is my name, and uh, so that makes it pretty easy. That would be Patty with a Y, P-A-T-T-Y, and my last name is Wooten, W-O-O-T-E-N.com, so PattyWooten.com. Um, and I have some articles posted there and links to other places on the Internet that are, are – um, um, helpful in terms of understanding how humor and laughter can be therapeutic physically as well as emotionally. Well, I certainly appreciate you spending time with me today. And I know that our listeners will get a lot out of the things that you shared with us today. You, you know, like I said, you're an icon to me. I, 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 I appreciate you and I appreciate the work that you do to try to bring, you know, joy to the world and heighten people's awareness, how humor and laughter can help them in their everyday struggles and through, you know, getting through disasters as well. You know, thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome, Chip. Thanks so much for including me. No, it was my pleasure. I'll catch you on the flip side. All righty. Take care. This is LaughBox, the podcast for laughter and humor professionals. LaughBox is made possible by a grant from the National Speakers Foundation and is brought to you by AATH, the Association for Applied and Therapeutic Humor. Find out more at AATH.org. Be sure to review LaughBox on iTunes. For show notes and more information about today's conversation, visit LaughBox.AATH.org.